If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Between the 6th and 4th centuries BC, the Persians presided over the greatest empire the world had yet seen. One that encompassed swathes of Eastern Europe, North Africa and Western Asia. So why do Western people know so little about the Persians today? It's a question that Lloyd Llewellyn Jones addresses in his new book, Persians, the Age of the Great Kings. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Lloyd argues it's high time we did more to tell the story of these consummate empire builders. Well, Lloyd, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Lloyd, you wrote a feature on the Persian Empire for the May issue of BBC History magazine. And your book, which is called Persians, The Age of the Great Kings, is, I believe, in the shops now. That's right. It's been out for about two weeks now, I think. Now, in the feature, you described the Persian Empire, which ran from roughly the middle of the 6th century BC to its fall at the hands of Alexander the Great in the second half of the 4th century BC, is the greatest the world had yet seen. 
Now, this was an empire presided over by some of the most accomplished rulers in ancient history, Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great among them, and one that, as you point out, at its height spanned a staggering two million square miles. Yeah, it's one that, here in the West at least, we know relatively little about. So I guess my first question, Lloyd, is... Why is that? Why have the Persian staggering achievements been so utterly overshadowed by the likes of the Greeks and the Romans in Western histories? Well, it it is because, of course, we have been so dependent in our writing of the ancient world, the history of the ancient world, on Greek and Roman sources. You know, ever since the, uh, the European Enlightenment, we have allied ourselves very closely as being the heirs of Greece and Rome, uh, and have therefore, you know, taken their historiography as our historiography too, neglecting the fact there is a global antiquity out there, you know, an antiquity that spans the whole of the continent of, of Asia, the whole of Africa, the whole of South America, the whole of North America, you know. Um, it, it's just just, it, it's not exactly accident of history, but it's how we have aligned ourselves to the historical narrative over the centuries. You know, we've approached the Persians from one of two sources, essentially. So first of all, they come through to us in the Hebrew Bible, that is the the, uh, the Christian Old Testament, where actually the Persians get really good press. You know, they were very much seen as the, the liberators of the Jews from the Babylonian exile, their captivity in Babylon. On. They were seen as the uh, instigators of the rebuilding of the Temple of Jerusalem. So they come over, if I can use a sort of 1066 parlance, as good things. But then, of course, on the co- on the opposite side, the flip side of the coin, is the reports that we get from um, the Greek historians, Herodotus, uh, Xenophon, and, and also, I mean, you know, comics like uh, Aristophanes, law court speakers like uh, Isocrates, where, of course, the, the Persians are cast as the ultimate enemy to the Greeks, um, as the ultimate barbaroi, the ultimate barbarians, essentially. So the way that they've come over in the sources is, at best, calculating, cold-blooded, and at worst, absolute despotic and deniers of what the Greeks considered to be freedom, um, eleutheria uh, in the Greek. So we are hostage to fortune, really, between these two polar opposites in which the Greek, the, the Persians have been uh, represented, the biblical approach and then the, the classical Greek and later Latin approaches as well. What I've tried to do in the book is to go back to indigenous Iranian sources, the, 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 the actual Persian sources themselves, to look for what I call the Persian version, um, which sits behind all of these um, pejorative or overly glossy representations. What I don't try to do is to whitewash the Persians. You know, their empire was built by military conquest and some hard-nosed soldiers with square jaws doing some despicable things. But at the same time, I try to give the Persians their worth in terms of appearance in, 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 a, in a global context. There isn't time on this podcast to tell the entire story of the rise and fall of the Persian Empire, but I do wonder if you could explain how the Persians were able to preside over this enormous empire, one which stretched across vast waves of Eastern Europe, North Africa and Western Asia for two centuries. What were the secrets of their success? 
Um, I think more than anything else, it was an empire ruled by bureaucracy, and that's the really quite remarkable thing. Um, it really is when bureaucrats ruled the world. The likes of Darius the Great in particular, he was exceptionally gifted as a, as a ruler and as a very skilled bureaucrat. So he instigated, for instance, um, a communication system which was second to none, and that was so fundamental to the safeguarding and the running of the empire of that size. So, for instance, um, the king laws were disseminated throughout the whole empire through the use of Aramaic, for instance, as the lingua franca at the time. So rather than uh, employing, you know, localised languages and therefore having to translate continuously, um, the Persians were very pragmatic in their use of Aramaic as, as the bureaucratic language which united the whole empire. Um, the whole of the land empire was crisscrossed by very sophisticated road systems, divided into parasangs, sort of one and a half miles per parasang, uh, and with road stations absolutely everywhere, meaning that somebody could travel on horseback between, say, Sardis, which is on the coast of modern-day Turkey, to the heart of Iran in about 19 days, which is pretty good going. Um, of course, they also uh, mastered the seas as well, and they mastered the landscape too. Uh, Darius the Great, for instance, dug a canal from the Red Sea to the Nile, connecting these two ways, which meant that, of course, Persian ships could therefore access the Nile uh, around the Persian Gulf and into Iran very quickly. They did the same in the north of Greece as well, dug a canal there too, which meant essentially they, they saw the opportunity to navigate the whole of their empires, both by water and by land, which is really quite an exceptional thing. The governance was based on what we call the satrapal system, so um, somewhat like governors, usually members of the imperial family, were stationed uh, in different parts of the empire and basically ran those sections of the empire, the satrapies, on behalf of the king in the manner of the great king as well, and constantly communicated with the imperial centre in the, in the centre of Iran what was going on and so forth. The Persians demanded taxation, of course. Uh, this usually came in the form of sort of uh, goods more than money, although money was invented by the Persians. Uh, and at Persepolis, um, we see, for instance, these great, great ceremonial gift-giving ceremonies carved into the walls where individuals from all across the empire uh, you know, are, are seen giving the kings their, their bargi, their taxation, their, their, their diplomatic gifts or their diplomatic necessities, I suppose. You write also in the feature that the Persians showed a, a, a degree of tolerance to their subject peoples. And can you expand on that a little? I mean, what did that degree of tolerance actually look like? Yes, I, th I think this is probably the most remarkable thing about the Persians themselves. If you think of the models of, of ancient empires that we're used to, Rome, I suppose, comes to mind straight away. And of course, as uh, an offshoot of that, the British, when uh, the British had their empire, they based it very much on the on the Roman practice, of course. Well, in those empires, what we have, of course, is this idea that um, wherever you went within the realm, the, the, the imperial realm, you could see the, the mark of Rome or Britain. Uh, so, for instance, in its architecture, you know, they imposed, the Romans imposed their look all over their empire, just as the British did, you know, bungalows in India and all this kind of thing. Likewise, the idea of language was really important. So in Rome, of course, in the Roman Empire, Latin had to be spoken if you were to get anywhere in the in the empire. And likewise, the legacy of English, of course, in, in India and elsewhere um, can still be seen today. 
The Persians didn't adopt any of these ideas at all. They allowed languages of nations uh, and peoples to, to flourish as they had done always. And this is why they instituted Aramaic as this kind of bureaucratic language. But there was no desire at all to impose Persian on conquered peoples. And there was no desire to impose Persian traditions, that Persian look, Persian architecture, anything onto these foreign peoples. And instead, what you find is actually quite the converse happens, that the Persians were really happy to take on board other kinds of architecture or artistic trends coming from the more kind of dominant cultural spheres of their empire, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, um, and assimilated them into a, a, a melange of styles which comes over as, in the end, authentically Persian. It's, it's, it's a very different way, you know, of thinking about how empire could operate um, in antiquity and beyond. And I guess my, my gripe, or my sorrow, I suppose, really, is the fact that the Persian empire wasn't taught in schools, you know, in the mid-Victorian period, where, of course, everybody went to, you know, to, to Roman history and, and as the Brits went out and, you know, conquered, colonised uh, and, and began to build its empire, you know, the, the, the Roman system was the, was the way forward. At least, you know, if we had been teaching that there was another way around empire, as unpleasant as all empires are, I'm not, an, I'm not a fan of empire at all. Nevertheless, I do believe there would have been a more dignified way of allowing peoples to express themselves, be themselves, if we'd adopted a Persian system. And, you know, that's, and that's what, you know, that's, that's a lesson of historiography for, it, uh, for us, isn't it? You know, when we choose our sources, we have to live with the consequences. Given all that, you, you describe yourself as a, and you've kind of alluded to this earlier in the interview, you describe yourself as a revisionist, not an apologist. What exactly do you mean by that? And that kind of implies, as you've already mentioned, that, you know, the Persians could use brute force when they needed to. Yes, that, that's, that's precisely it. So I want to revise history. I want to give the Persians their place in history, but I don't want to whitewash them. Um, and I think that's that's a danger, you know, um, when we use words like tolerance. Well, tolerance within a certain limitations, of course, you know, this is, these are still imperial peoples who held on to their empire for 200 years, you know, with, with force. And when peoples in the empire rebelled against the central authorities, which they did, Egypt, for instance, was a particularly thorny problem for the Persians. It broke away from the empire for almost 60 years and had to be reconquered. It was done so with with brute force, the Persians were as skilled and as keen to use their uh, military clout as any other conquering people. We see the similar kinds of attitudes taken, for instance, to mass deportation under the Persians that we see under the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The same kind of structure goes on. Artaxerxes III was notorious for being a, a very brutal conqueror. Um, he raised, for instance, the city of Sidon to the to the ground when Sidon dared rebel against his rule. And so the, the, the Persians were not pushovers. Let's not ever think that way. And the while there are many benefits to the, the Persian system, nevertheless, empire building, of course, 
goes hand in hand with military might and with uh, a certain loss of freedoms for people. And we have to keep that in mind. I, I do not want to to consider these peoples to have been liberators um, at all. They, they were still an oppressive lot, even though they actually governed with a more enlightened view than other ancient empires. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... This is something heretical to you, but sometimes I tell my students that Persepolis makes the uh, the Parthenon on the Acropolis look like a garden shed. It really does. I mean, just for the sheer sense of scale, let, let just just our listeners um, get into their minds. I mean, this this is imperial architecture. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Two Persian rulers have earned the epithet the Great, and that's Cyrus and Darius. Can you just tell us a little bit about these two men and, and why why they deserve that title, assuming that in fact you think they do deserve that title? I, th- I think they do. Um, you know, I'm I'm I, I'm not very cavalier in using things like the Great very, well. I, but I think Cyrus certainly deserves it just because of the astonishing way in which. Within his lifetime, he went from taking Iran from being basically a tribal federation to the beginnings of of imperialism. It, it, it was quite astonishing, really. Within 40 years, he had managed to conquer all of the Persian tribes, conquer the Medes in the north and bring under his control their ever-increasing empire, which took him into central Anatolia 
brought crashing down the kingdom of Lydia and therefore brought the Persians into contact with the Greek city-states for the first time and, of all things, managed to to conquer Babylon and bring in under his control the whole of the Neo-Babylonian Empire as well. I mean, this is staggering, really, really astonishing. And I I can't, you know, it's really hard to to put it down. What, What was it? I mean, this man just had vision um, and 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 just incredible self awareness, I suppose, to have done that and to brought these people with him, you know, um, from really being nomads to imperial builders within forty years is incredible. Darius, I guess, does deserve the epithet the Great, but for a different reason. I think he, as I said, was the great bureaucrat. He was the the controller and the organizer. I think his great skill was bringing the empire a coherency, a kind of ideology of monarchy and was established under him. Um, the, the actual, we, we get our first Persian, ancient Persian language inscriptions under him as well. So he was promoting the empire, I suppose, finding a rationale um, for his empire. He didn't have a great deal of success military-wise. There was an aborted campaign into Scythia. We know there was trouble on the Western Front with the Greeks and the Ionians. One thing he did do, and, I, and it's a shame really that the Ionian Greeks got in the way, he had a campaign into India, and of course he, he conquered up into the Punjab, but he could have gone much deeper into India if he hadn't had to draw his forces back into into Anatolia to to, to put down the, the Greek rebellions that were going on there. So that was his great missed opportunity. But by and large, his greatness relies in his, his bureaucracy and in his vision for giving the, the empire itself a kind of a, a message, I suppose, uh, an ideology to, to get behind. I guess we can't mention Darius without talking about his extraordinary palace, Persepolis, in the desert of modern-day Iran. You describe this as one of the great sites of antiquity. What makes it so incredible? It's sheer scale. You know, when you when you wander around the the ruins of Persepolis, they they have a really haunting quality to them. They're very beautiful, but it really is architecture on an imperial scale. You know, I, I've taken my students to Iran several times, and many of them have visited Athens. Uh, you know, seen been up on the Acropolis before, and they make the point to me all the time that that this is on a different level entirely. It really is. This is something heretical to you, but sometimes I tell my students that Persepolis makes the uh, the Parthenon on the Acropolis look like a garden shed. It really does. I mean, just for the sheer sense of scale, let, let just just our listeners um, get up into their minds. I mean, this this is imperial architecture. It is palace after palace. Essentially, the whole of Persepolis was a building site for for over 200 years as every successive king added their own buildings onto the, the imperial platform. The great Apadana, the, the the great imperial throne hall at Persepolis, can hold a hundred thousand people. Wow. For instance, you know, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of scale that we're dealing with. That's you a know, lot of it, people. It, it, it's a lot of people. It's a vast, vast enterprise. Can we return to the Greeks? I I, I want to know why were they so keen to trash the Persians? I mean, what was in it for them? What was in it for them was actually the birth of a sense of their own identity. You know, before the Persian Wars, um, there was no such thing as Greece, of course. There were city-states united by a language with its various dialects, but there was no real sense of being Hellenes together at all. This is why, I suppose, the myth of 
of Troy was so important to them. At least it gave them some kind of galvanizing unity. When the Persians emerged as this huge superpower in the East, and we shouldn't underestimate the roller coaster impact it had on the Greeks, it forced the Greeks to 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 come together. Uh, to repel this enemy, and it gave them um, a sense of purpose and a sense of identity. It never unified the Greeks per se. Don't forget, within you know thirty years of the Persian Wars, we're 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 into the the period of the Peloponnesian Wars, and even during the Persian Wars itself, I think it's very important to remember, and I've stressed this in my book, that this was not a united Greek front against Persia. There were many Greek city-states who fought for the Persians, who really believed that their future, uh, the, the, you know, the betterment of their people, lay with the Persian Empire than being alone, um, having to defend themselves against other warring uh, and hostile Greek city-states. And, but, but what happens is, of course, is, is that over the, the centuries, by the time, or well, even very close on, by the time we get to Herodotus writing some 60 years after Xerxes' invasion, we have a mythologizing process already at work. You know, Herodotus has got a very clear agenda. That is, he's writing a, 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 an inquiry into the wars for an Athenian audience. That's, that's, that's his base. And so what he tries to do in the histories, of course, is, is to create a mythology, a series of legends, in, in a way, in which Athens itself ta- takes prime place. It, it's the major player. And, of course, has to set itself up as a kind of mirror image against the, the, the despicable, despotic Persians. What's incredible is the, the legacy that that historical approach has had on Western uh, historians ever since. So uh, in the 19th century, John Stuart Mill was able to write, for instance, and this is really incredible. He once said, as an episode in British history, the Battle of Marathon is more important than the Battle of Hastings. That's really quite remarkable. That is quite a statement, yeah. Because there he's saying, of course, you know, that what we are as Europeans, as Westerners, we owe everything to the Greeks. And therefore, this this moment when, you know, the Persians were repelled first at Marathon uh, and later on at Salamis in particular, uh, was really the, the founding moment, the, the cornerstone of Western civilization. And and that is, you know, that that's still a factoid which is distributed widely today. I noticed that a, a book has recently come out called um, something like the three battles that saved the West or, or something like that, you know, or saved democracy, whatever democracy was, you know, in its ancient form. I, I, I do speculate in the book what would have happened had the Greeks uh, succumbed to Persian power. I think that there's very a little prospect of the, of the Persians having destroyed this nascent democracy. After all, many of the Greek cities in Asia Minor, which were ruled by Persians, still continued as democracies because the Persians just didn't change the, you know, the institutions of the cities that they conquered anywhere in, in, in their empire. Um, so I think that hi- highly likely that Athens would have become a satrapal centre for the rulership of Greece. But what would have happened, I think, is that um, from there, the Persians and their many Greek allies, including Athens then, of course, it would have been, would have stormed into the Peloponnesian and would have destroyed the Spartans. 
um, who were really actually the true despots of antiquity, of course. You know, I mean, there are no, you know, uh, you know, worse kind of rulership than, than under Sparta. So it would have been a very um, different political look. But I don't think that the Persians would ever have destroyed the fledgling democracy. There would still have been drama. There would still have been sculpture. You know, I do not believe that, as as some people have said, you know, in, in their scaremongering, that we wouldn't have uh, emerged as a civilization had the Persians got there first. Whatever have happened, it's, it's simply not the Persian way. But how much is this Greek hatchet job or retarded or obstructed research into the Persians in the West over the centuries? Well, it's there all the time, you know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's constantly being written and rewritten. It has informed our, our own British idea of what empire is all about. Lord Curzon, Viceroy of India, had travelled to, to Persia in the 1880s. He'd written his two-volume work on, on Persia, which some people have said was the world's largest CV. Basically, the job was, you know, Viceroy of India, uh, which he got, of course. And, and in it, you know, he he kind of comes to Persia with all of his kind of preconceived knowledge that he gets from from Herodotus and from Xenophon. And he makes statements like, it seems puzzling to me, he says, that the Asiatic would rather be ruled piecemeal by other Asiatics than brought under the civilising banner of Europe. You know, I mean, that's the legacy that we're dealing with, or, or you know, constantly. And it goes through, of course, into popular culture. I mean, you've only got to think of of the film like 300 or its prequel, 300 Rise of an Empire, to see that the same rhetoric is being tropped out time after time after time. It's an old and a hackneyed way of looking at the, the Greek and Persian past. And this is why, really, I, I decided to, to write the book after years and years and years of teaching Persian history to students in Edinburgh University and laterally in Cardiff University. I thought, you know, this is it, this needs to get out there further because we, we have to start looking at antiquity in a global context to really understand what's going on you know we we have to we have to join up all the dots we can't remain a kind of eurocentric little island any longer um, we're not doing that with the rest of the world and with other you know later periods in 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 history there is a drive towards a globalized look at, at what's going on and we can do that in ancient history as well. Um, and so this book is, is, is part of a call, which others are making too, to extend our knowledge, to spread our understanding and, and to look at ancient history in a kind of cinemascope um, way, really, you know, in, 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 in widescreen format uh, and, and see where we can draw ideas together. I mean, on that note, what about the rest of the world? Are, are the Persians' achievements celebrated more widely outside Europe? And obviously I'm thinking most especially here about in Iran itself. Iran has got a very problematic and mixed attitude to its pre-Islamic past. So let's forget, let's not forget that Iran is a at least on paper, um, a theocracy. So it's the Islamic Republic of Iran, don't forget. Uh, and therefore, it, how the pre-Islamic past is preserved and represented in Iran does have its problems. So the ruling regime is not comfortable, particularly, of course, with the acknowledgement that 
there was a, a pagan past in Iran. And yet at the same time, it is very aware that most Iranians are patriotic and nationalistically drawn to the glories of the Persian Empire. Of course they should be, you know, to, to figures like Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great. They are naturally drawn to them, but they don't know what to do with it. That's the trouble. So ancient Persian history is not well taught in Iran at all. One of my students many years ago, uh, an Iranian girl herself, did a, a survey at Persepolis um, on tourists, local Iranian tourists who were turning up. And she was just asking very basic questions. Who built this? When was it built? And that nobody could really answer, you know. So there's, a, a by and large, a lack of understanding of Persia's own past. And yet, at the same time, there is this drive, especially by the young, to claim its antique heritage as part of what's happening there now. The, the demography of Iran is remarkable. Over 70% of Iranians are under the age of 40, which is a, it's a very, very young country full of young people. And these young people are media savvy. They're, you know, they're, they're on social networking all the time. They are very aware of the way in which their country is misrepresented by Western media. And they can they are using their very rich pre-Islamic heritage as a counterlever to that. They're saying, look, we were sophisticated. We were world leaders at, at one time. And while there may be a tendency to gild the lily or to look at these things through rose-colored glasses on the Iranian part, which I hope my book will will kind of address for them, I do not want to take away that sense of pride that they have in their their past. I think they, they've earned it. I think they, you know, it, it it it's owing to them really. So I'm happy for them to, you know, to, to keep on doing that. And you know, long may they do it um as well. I'm glad to say that increasingly more and more scholarly books on ancient Persia are being translated into Farsi and are appearing in the bookshops of Iran. And there's clearly an appetite for them. I'm, I'm hoping that my book will get a Farsi translation. My other works have had translations into Farsi, which I think is really important. But, you know, what I long to see is more Iranians writing their own history from the inside. That's what's important, of course. That's what we need to be striving for. That's when we know that the job is done, when, when people take hold of their own histories and write their own national narratives. Uh, of course. So that's what I hope we can look for in the, in the future. You know, in your feature, the part of the, not necessarily problem, but maybe one of the difficulties in writing histories of the Persians is the way that they wrote history themselves. So they chiefly relied on oral storytelling, poetry and song. I mean, how much of a problem does the nature of the sources present to historians of the Persian Empire? Well, uh, yes, there is no one narrative history of, of, of the Persians. You know, they, they didn't have their Herodotus and they didn't have their Xenophon. It was of no interest to them. These were a nomadic people who took their stories, their, their, their histories with them. And yes, they remembered them very differently. It's not that the Iranians don't know the history, it's that they remember it differently. That's, that's the, that's the key here. So when you're, um, an ancient Persian historian, you have to cast your net very wide. You have to go and look at everything. That means royal inscriptions, you know, the kind of official uh, and therefore very hyperbolic texts 
set up by the great kings themselves. You have to look at all of the cuneiform documents, which exist in their tens of thousands, which tell us about the bureaucracy of the empire, how Persepolis and Susa run. You have to look at the art. You have to look at the archaeology. You have to think about things from the point of view of an anthropologist, how, how you know, societies work on the ground. Um, you have to, you, you cannot throw out anything. You have to use everything. So Persian history, really, working on Persian history is like putting together a huge jigsaw puzzle. And there are many, many gaps in our knowledge from around the edge. And a couple of pieces, our core pieces are missing from the centre as well. But, you know, there's always hope that we will find more to make that picture more complete. We just have to think differently when we're approaching Persian history as modern historians. And what do you think the future holds for the study of, of the Persian Empire? I think things look good. You know, from my own experience of, of teaching it for, for 20 years now, it certainly grips the student's imagination. Um, they very often come to universities only knowing some Greek and Roman history. And so Persian history comes as something as a surprise and a novelty to them. Once once they taste it, 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 it tends to stay with them as well. So increasingly, myself and colleagues are supervising PhDs in, in Persian history and so forth. I'm delighted to say that GCSE Ancient History now has compulsory ancient Persian component and that we're working very hard at the moment about putting in uh, an ancient Persian uh, component into A-level ancient history as well. So we are normalising the Persians. That's all I want. I don't want to privilege the Persians over anybody else. I just want them to have their own place in our understanding of how ancient cultures and ancient societies work together. I think there's a there's, there's a great deal of scope. There's a lot to be done yet. You know, when we compare it with historians of of uh, Greece or historians of Egypt um, who have been writing histories of of their um, cult- cultures for for centuries now, we're a long way behind. So there are many many areas that uh, are as yet unexplored. There are many different thematic approaches we can take to Persia. So, for instance, it would be great to see some work done on on gender in ancient Persia, ethnicity in ancient Persia, all of these kind of buzz topics which are routinely looked at now by uh, ancient historians in the fields of Rome, Greece and and Egypt and others. Um, All of this is open and and ripe for investigation within Persia as well. So I'm, I'm really hoping, and I'm very hopeful, in fact, that there's a secure future for, for Persia ahead. And finally, Lloyd, with our listeners in mind, if, if they wanted to go and experience some of the treasures of Persia, to go to a museum and, and see some of these in- incredible cultural creations and artefacts, I mean, where, where should they be going? Well, there are a couple I can recommend. Uh, first of all, of course, uh, in London, there's the British Museum itself, which has got a, 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 be- a small but very, very fine collection of ancient Persian artefacts, including the famous Oxus treasure. Uh, a quick nip across the channel will take you to the Louvre in Paris. And the Louvre has got an unsurpassed collection of ancient Persian antiquities, mainly drawn from the French excavations at Susa during the late 19th century, really quite a, a staggering collection. The Pergamon Museum in, in Berlin, also has a, a very, very fine collection in its uh, permanent collection. But I should give a bit of a plug as well that next year at the British Museum, running from April until 
August next year, 2023, the British Museum are hosting a huge exhibition called Luxury from Cyrus to Alexander, which deals on the Persian court and the Persian Empire. So that'll be a bit of a, a visual treat, I've, I've no doubt whatsoever. That was Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. His book, Persians, the Age of the Great Kings, is out now published by Wildfire. Lloyd also wrote a feature on the Persians for the May issue of BBC History magazine. You can find that now at historyextra.com. Just search for The Persians. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Listener.